to In Thousand and One Books, the podcast where we read the thousand and one books you're supposed to read before you die and decide if they're worth your time. I'm Nicole, a lover of historical fiction and Harry Potter. And I'm Chelsea, and I also really love historical fiction and Harry Potter, but I love a good YA tearjerker novel that will make you cry. It's true. So, what have you been reading besides our book for today, Charles? What have you been reading since we last recorded? So, recently I just finished Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, and I really loved it. I'm a big fan of dystopian novels, and I liked that it was an adult dystopian, which I think you don't get very often. And I also just really liked the pop culture references and the... um, kind of fun technology aspect of you of it. What about you? Yeah. Ready Player One is so good. I read that a couple of years ago and then I recently listened to the audiobook where the person doing it is Will Wheaton, the, who was like good the kid choice. on Star Trek. Yeah, so it was so really great. And yeah, it's like that book is so good. It's like there's so many references I feel like that I didn't even get. Like and you should read that guy Ernest Klein's second book, Armada, also really good. Um, the last book I read before the one we we're talking about tonight was um, a YA book called Wendy Darling Stars, Volume 1. And it's the first book, I think, in a trilogy of a an adaptation of Peter Pan. And the author's name is Colleen Oaks. And I read an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland adaptation by her, which is really good. And this one was good, too. Um, though I was kind of like, oh, I just wanted this to be one novel, not a trilogy, because it really cuts off in the, in the end. you know. And I think the second book is out, but I haven't gotten it yet. Um, but it was really good, and I feel like I never was a huge Peter Pan fan as a child. But this, it's kind of, it's good when it's more dark, you know? It makes it better. I really like those fairy tale adaptations, especially, I really like Beauty and the Beast ones, too. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. All right. Well, our book today is not either of those things. It is For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. It was published in 1940, and it kind of is focused in a time period in the 1930s as a time period the book is about, and it was 471 pages long, so really it was our first longer novel for this whole adventure. It's true. So if you had to describe For Whom the Bell Tolls in one word, Chelsea, how would you describe it? Well... I just said it was 471 pages long, and I definitely felt every single one of those 471 (laughs) pages. My one-word description would probably be tedious. Yeah, I'm gonna. I really wanted to like this book because it's such a classic, and I've never read any Hemingway before. But it was like the first book that we pulled out of the hat that I knew I'd heard of. It's like a well-known classic, Um, and. And I knew that it was supposed to be kind of like an anti-war novel. And I was like, great. But I'd have to say that my one word description is bland. <laughs> so that gives you a flavor of our feelings. Yeah. And this <laughs> is the type of time in the podcast where we're going to move on to spoilers. So obviously we're going to talk about the plot. If you have not read it yet and you intend on reading it, or if you care if you're spoiled, because you might not, you would probably want to stop listening right now. But Nicole, would you give us a quick plot of this book? So this book is set in the Spanish uh, Civil War right before World War II. And in that war, like it was between fascists and communists in Spain. And a lot of foreign expat soldiers came to fight in it both like from Russia in the communist side and from America from, and from Western Europe all over. And so the main character is this guy, Robert Jordan, who's an American, and he speaks Spanish and has traveled in Spain, and he comes to participate because it was definitely seen as like, you know, good, the good guys, 
the communists and the like democrats against the fascists and so he is assigned a mission to go behind enemy lines and blow up a bridge with the help of like some partisans who are like living in the hills behind enemy lines so he goes there and he meets those people and there's lots of drama and he falls in love with a girl and then they uh and then the whole book takes place over like four days and then they finally get to the point where they're gonna blow up the bridge and he knows that they're all probably gonna die because the whole offensive is poorly planned and um and then they blow up the bridge and and then they blow up the bridge and um and a lot of the characters die uh and that that's what that's the plot you expect people to die and then they die that war that's war (laughs) (laughs) that would be a shorter way of writing this novel it's true what we had (laughs) yeah um, yeah, so, yes, I feel like you have a lot of feelings, Chelsea. Tell us about your feelings. Really, my main problem with this book is its length, not necessarily the content, because I think it is what I expected it to be going in. It is a novel from the first half of the 1900s. It's kind of wordy. It goes off on tangents. All of that I expected, but it was 471 pages to talk about three days. And I just felt like that made it drag in ways that it didn't need to drag to get its message across. Yes. Yeah, I feel like it was it was longer than it needed to be. And, and there's a lot of tangents, and a few of them were interesting. And I feel like the prose in the book for me was that I was interested to learn about the Spanish Civil War, because I don't feel like I've really learned a lot about that. And it made me, like, go read things on Wikipedia so I could understand what I was happening. I did too. And, uh, which that was cool, and it was... Uh, and I feel like it was trying to say something philosophically about the nature of war that was interesting, um, but said in a pretty indirect way. Like, like if this book was written now, it would be a lot more direct in the imagery and the yes. vi- and then what the violence is, um, violence was like. And then, um, so I think those things were good. And I think that the character development was decent, you know, um, like, but it was just it's just slow it was so slow and maybe that is meant to be a metaphor for how like in war there's you know like long long stretches of nothing between like action you know Mm -hmm. and maybe the book is supposed to be kind of showing that too you know there's like this build up and the tension is building as they know they're about to blow up the bridge for so you know for over these days and everyone is acting crazy you know outside of their normal personalities because of that tension and the, you know, because war isn't just like shoot a guy, battle, shoot a guy. You know, it's like there's all this dead it's a lot time. Of hurry up and wait. Yeah. So maybe that's like maybe that was intentional choice by Hemingway to make it re- more representative. I know I'm pretty sure that Hemingway during this war like was actually there as a yeah, journalist or something, right? It actually mm-hmm. says on the back of our book that our copy we have it kind of talks about why he was there so he covered the civil war um for the north american newspaper alliance in 1937 so he was actually in spain during the time period that this book happens and so obviously it's still fictional he wasn't uh, some a bomb planter for right the mm-hmm. war but it is interesting because it does seem like he has a little bit more firsthand experience maybe than a lot of authors when they talk about war uh, which right. added a little bit to it that might not have been there. The only other book that I've read that kind of touches on this time period is by Ken Follet. Follet? Follet? The guy who wrote the one about the cathedral. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Pillars of the Earth. Pillars of the Earth. So he also wrote a trilogy where, I can't remember what they're called, but like the first book covers an, um, 
World War One, and it's like there's an American family and a British family and a Russian family and a German family, and then the next book is kind of World War Two era, and it follows the next generation of those families, and then the next book is like the 1960s, and it follows the next generation. And in the middle one, some of the characters go to are British, and they go to fight in the Spanish Civil War, and it was a big deal because at that time it was like the first big conflict since World War One in Europe, and where Russia was uh, communist, not not a monarchy and and lots there was lots of in that book they thankfully there was lots of russians um kind of secretly supporting the 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 communist side but then the west other western people who there were they weren't communists necessarily they were just like democrats and anti-fascists and this was like strange bedfellows you know to be together so it's interesting to see this book because it kind of touched on the same things about and and it's crazy because it's in america we just never hear anything good in school about communists ever you know or fascists or fascists yeah (laughs) there wasn't really that was part of what i thought was interesting about reading this book is um even though the characters were all obviously human characters it was both sides are bad guys in in the american like yeah the current cold war era american yeah like cold war in the american story like we say fascists are bad guys. We say communists are bad guys. They're both bad guys in the way we're taught in American history. But they, we were on the communist side when we were reading this book because we were hearing it from Their someone side, who was yeah. fighting with the communists. Yeah. And so that was really, really interesting. And I think he mentioned it a couple of times in the book. The character, Robert Jordan, mentioned, you know, I probably have a red dot next to my name now. I might not right. be able to return. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a professor and he thought, I probably won't be able to do that again because... And, you know, America was so anti-communist and America was neutral in this war, right? He went yeah. of his own accord. And what's interesting is that I don't know, <laughs> this is embarrassing, I don't know who, which side won. I Googled it. I Googled <laughs> it. Um, the fascist side won, which is why Spain, because France, Franco, Franco, I don't remember his first name. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Who was the dictator in Spain until the 1970s, from this time to the 1970s, wow. was on the fascist side. It's why Spain was neutral in oh. World War II, but still fed the Nazis and Axis powers ships. Oh, because that's why you never hear really about Spain in World War II. Yes. I always thought because it was because they were neutral, like Switzerland was neutral. But they were neutral because they were more aligned with the Axis. Yes, it was really interesting. I hmm. never knew that before, yeah. so that was a fun fact. That, that is that I really interesting. That's crazy that the person who won this war was in power until the 1970s. That's Thanks. wild. Yeah, he was in power for a long time, and it wasn't the side we were reading about. So, like, it gave an extra turn to this book, because I Googled yeah. it probably about halfway through the book and um, and so then I was like well I know they're gonna lose like yeah and I wonder what like I wonder if like a like the, that loss like contributed to like when when like the allies in World War II is like we we have to like draw a line in the sand that fascists can't have more than Spain you know like and, mm-hmm. and I feel like the trained fighters who survived this war definitely fought in World War II because they would have been the right age you know and then, like, the foreigners and stuff. And the, but I then, said many of the people yeah. who were on the communist side ended up, especially those who were on that side because they were anti-fascist, not necessarily because they were communist, ended up moving into France oh, after yeah. the battle was lost. And so yeah. then that must have played a role in, in, the, the, resi- fe- in the resistance, resistance in and France and the French countryside mm-hmm. because those people had already been raised on resistance. Yeah, that's true. And then, and then I, a lot of novels talk about, like, 
a network of the resistance in France, like helping down pilots escape over the mountains into Spain to get out, mm-hmm. to, like, to get out of Europe. Um, I've got a lot of novels that touch on that, like that yeah. connection, like that railroad of people to do it. Also, I wonder why Spain then didn't come in and support Hitler and Mussolini more actively if they were also fascists. But maybe they were just like, we're tired of war, good luck. Like, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't really, I mean, I only read the Wikipedia, so yeah. don't 100% trust my source. But it wasn't really clear in the Wikipedia. Fair enough. I mean, that's that's all you can ask for. It's not like you have an Encyclopedia Britannica like at your hands all the time. That would be really great. Yeah. Just, a, I want a digital one. Ready Player One should become not reality, but I want a digital encyclopedia. You need Encarta. Do you remember Encarta? Oh, Encarta was great. That's great. I was reading a list on BuzzFeed recently, and I was like, if you were born after this year, you'll you'll be like, crazy, I forgot about that. And one of them was Encarta. And I was like, Encarta. Oh, I used to just look up random, random things. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is the best. I can't believe they gave out free encyclopedias with Windows. Like it was great. To when when buying a set of book encyclopedias costs like a thousand dollars. I can't believe there was a time when we didn't have enough video games to amuse us, so we played on Encarta. <laughs> yeah, I, we also had this one on my parents' first computer that was like it was like a globe, and you could like sail over the land, you know. And then there was like you know go from this country to this I country. That one. I don't remember what. I think it was, it was included in like Windows ninety five too. Probably there were a lot. Windows ninety five came with some legit yeah. stuff. Well, they must have been like we have to get people to buy personal computers, you know, like normal regular middle class people. Because we had some really cool games like Torrance Passage and Doctor Brain. If anybody listening has played those, they should comment. I have not played those. They were great. My first uh, computer game I had was like a Michelle Kwan, the ice skater game, where you got to like dress her up and then design her ice skating routines. I think that was on Windows 98. Super good. Anyways, for whom the bell tolls. I know. (laughs) This is how much we love this book. (laughs) The podcasts are made up out of their tangents. That's just a fact. Any podcast. Um, So that's what I was trying to say about for whom the bell tolls. So do you think that this novel is anti-war, pro-war, or neutral? I don't think Hemingway knew. Mm. I think that parts of it um, are glorifying war a little bit, and parts of it are making it very clear how atrocious it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what the end message is other than the futility of life, which... And war, the futility of war. True, but it felt more like it was more about the futility of life, not necessarily the futility of war. Mm. Like, yeah. they talked a lot about killing themselves. There was a lot about how or, I... Do you remember the part where he talks about his grandfather who fought in the American Civil War? Which is weird to think of a time when your grandparents would have fought in the Civil War because it seems like so long ago, but this is an old book. And then, and, But then his dad killed himself. And then and then he was fighting the war kind of to li- uh, live that down, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But then he also was prepared to kill himself. Well, yeah, to avoid, like, torture and, like, giving yeah. up its secrets. I, what I think is interesting about it is because I feel like starting with World War One through, like, the Vietnam War, there is this shift where there was, like, a war where, like, every generation of sons would go to war when they were young. And at first, it, there was, like, people went for the glory, you know? Mm-hmm. But then kind of starting World War One, where the casualties were so high and the chemical weapons and stuff were so atrocious... And then, like, by Vietnam, where people felt maybe that, like, they didn't know why we were fighting in that war, you know, that the attitude, like, the general populace in America and and maybe in the world about war changed, right? And then Mm -hmm. instead of becoming, like, a thing that was necessary and good to expand territory and to defend ideals, 
it started to feel people people I think culture became more jaded about it and so I feel like this book came out right in the middle I think of that transition that happened over like the 20th century you know and so and he if it was published in 1940 World War II was like just getting going right it was yeah. a long way from done and so I think it it's a good measure the way that Robert Jordan thinks about it in the book the main character is a good measure of like oh is it yeah, I want that glory that my grandfather had and this is what a man does and it's mm-hmm. powerful and I feel powerful and you have to kill and and, and then also just like, but I'm still what am I doing? And I'm going to be more honest about like, how if I lose this, how is it going to affect me? Am I still going to be the person that I was? Because I mean, this is a time when like PTSD and stuff wasn't acknowledged yet, right? No. And so One yeah. of the scenes that I thought was most affecting in this book was actually one of the tangent scenes, not mm-hmm. one of the main scenes in the story. And it's when Pilar, 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 mm-hmm. um, is going on about what happened in her town and how they moved the fascists out. And I thought it was really interesting because it portrayed the way that like these people who thought they were doing something to save their country, um, quickly transformed into a mob mm-hmm. and when they became a mob that kind of drew the line between the men who like couldn't handle that and become the mob like there were a few men who like stepped out of the crowd and were like we're over this we can't yeah. and then the men who were kind of possessed by that like it was presented more like a bloodthirstiness and yeah. like a drunken anger and they like basically beat these other men who they perceived as fascists to death but both sides in the story were made to seem very human. I It was hard for me to read. Yeah, and that part was really hard to read. Do you know what it made me think of, though? <laughs> this is really ridiculous. Right, but when I was reading that, it made me think of the end of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the play, because at the end of that book, they, like, defeat Lord Voldemort again, and they and they capture the bad guy from the play, and this Harry Potter's son is like, let's kill them. And then Harry Potter's like, no, we can't. And Ron is like, we have to be better than them, the other side. We have we. That, it sucks, but that's what we learned. You, you can't sink as low as the enemy. And I think what you can, what I think what that scene is trying to say is that like when when you're going to use violence, even if you start out thinking that you're on the side of good, violence is innately evil, and so you're always going to slide and be as bad as your enemy, and on both sides, and it ends up like the it's very gray morally. Um, also, if you hear background noise, my cat has decided that now is the time to play, so sorry about that. <laughs> you know, cats, they're real predictable. Uh, yeah, I, this whole book is morally gray. Right, and I think that's what makes it important, because I think part of me is like, I've read better anti-war novels than this, but probably I've read those books because this book was written, right? Like, this is a like it was the foundation on which they said for a modern 20th century novel that's anti-war right at least i mean maybe we'll read more from this list but i so, but i feel like i haven't read too many that are pre-world war ii you know yeah i guess i ha- i mean in They're general i haven't era. read a lot of war novels that are pre-world war ii and except for i've read a couple of civil war american civil war novels um but that's a whole different kind of jam because clearly in our narrative there is a bad guy and a good guy there Right, and that's the thing, and like the history of war is written by the people who won, and like we were very careful to tell the story. I remember even I took a class about nonviolence in college, and one of the lectures was about World War II and how people always think of that as the at least that's the one war that's just. And I'm not saying that it wasn't, but there is an argument to be made that no wars could be just because, like for example, in World War II when we were 
winning across the Pacific and we'd gotten to the main island of Japan and, and we were going to win, right? The momentum was on the mm-hmm. Allies' side and and we were trying to negotiate peace and we asked them to sur- like surrender and for the emperor of Japan to step aside and not be emperor anymore and, and he wouldn't do it. And he said, we'll surrender, they said, we'll surrender completely but we but let the emperor like retain a ceremonial role not part of the government just ceremonial and we said no and then we dropped the nuclear bombs but was that you know but it's like would it have been okay if we had a ceremonial role maybe you know and so they're like like issues like that where i think there's there's no absolute good in war it doesn't matter Yeah, I mean, it all, it all is shades of gray. It just depends on how darkly gray you go. Yeah, and which side you start, you started on, you know? Yeah. It's like, I what is, what is the American Revolution called to people in the UK, you know? Like, how it has a different name, right? Mm -hmm. It's It's not the War of Independence, right? It's like the War with the Colonies. (laughs) Yeah. This, all the things in this book are very dark and heavy and, like, intense, for sure. (laughs) Well, and, but mixed in there... I just want to talk about the insta-love for a moment because I I had a hard time buying it. So yeah, so in this book he gets to the encampment of the Parsmans and there's a girl there who's like, she's not with any of the men in the group but they rescued her from the fascists where she's being held. And to add a little bit of context to um, when she was with the fascists she was raped and tortured so um, there's this whole set of things about how she just has returned to her right mind after yeah, that. Yeah, like she'd been like suffering and then kind of getting back to herself now that she was among good people or people on her weren't hurting her. And so the man, Robert Jordan, in the story, the journalist, or not, he's not a journalist, sorry, Hemingway was a journalist, the bombardier guy, yeah. um, he meets her in the encampment and then they have sex the first night and before they're having sex they're already saying like, I love you. Do you love me? I love you. But then she basically does say, like, like the other woman in the group told me to come sleep with you because it would help clear away all the pain of the abuse. Which, right? that mm-hmm. I thought was like an interesting, slate. like, conception back before we really knew how to handle rape. That yeah, rape. and, like, victim blaming. And, and that would have been interesting. Yeah. But then the, just that they were in love so instantaneously and... I don't know about Hemingway's sex life, but he wrote some real interesting, real repetitive scenes about um, sex, and there was one (laughs) that was all about the word never, or nowhere. I'm going to read a little little, uh, blurb of this, because I have read this to everyone I've talked to about this book, because I think it's a ridiculous scene. So... In it, they're, they're having sex, but this isn't graphic in any way, shape, or form. Um, so he says, For him it was a dark passage, which led to nowhere, then to nowhere, then again to nowhere, once again to nowhere, always and forever to nowhere, never any end to nowhere, hung all time, nowhere. And it keeps going. It says nowhere about 20 more times, and <laughs> then the earth moves during their sex. And so I just, this was the part of the story that was the least, like, I really liked the, um, the ambiguity of the Pablo character and the Pilar character and how she was a model of, like, 
a woman really being the leader of her... Even though she was, like, pretty crazy and... She was crazy, but it was interesting (laughs) that it was not, like, a model, like, a great person, but, like, that she... there was a woman leader in the... Yeah, Yeah. there was a woman Mm -hmm. leader, and I liked the Anselmo guy, the old man... He was my favorite. was leading people back and forth, and I liked Robert Jordan, and I liked the story that they were trying to have Maria tell separately. I did not like their insta-love. I would say that I didn't feel like it was believable in a modern sense, you know, at all, but I feel like it was, it was in there sort of as like more metaphorically or allegorically about like how when you're in an intense pressured situation, feelings are like way over the top. And I think the fact that they are immediately like, oh, we've had sex now. I'm your woman and you're mine. Like, that's just a it's just a different time, you know. And I think it's like you're saying those things because you know that you're both about to die. There's no way it's gonna. There's no way you're gonna go to Madrid and go to America and be together. You're both probably gonna be dead in two days. And logically, I know all that, but it still didn't make me like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like oh, what is it definitely. I did not consider it a sweet romance to read about in any any shape or, or form. Or just like a realistic romance. Yeah. Or then at the end, when Robert Jordan is like he's been injured and he knows he has to stay behind and he like talks to her and he tells Pablo you know make sure she goes with you and then she then he sits uh he like pulls Maria over to talk to her and he's just like okay like you have to go on like now wherever you go I'm with you and she's like no I'm gonna stay with you and he's like no like don't you see like I'm going with you like our souls are entwined we're one wherever you are for the rest of your life I'm with you keep going and then he makes Pablo take her away which I was just like I get it, and like she needed to not stay there. There was no reason for her to die too, you know. But but it wasn't. I don't know. It just felt. I I wasn't like sold on. It, it wasn't like oh yes, like this is super believable. Um, yeah, and like he's was... being like how, like how many people are that eloquent? Like when they feel like they're gonna die, you know. Um, no. Though one. there's another passage <laughs> that I really liked that was about like talking about like how do people act when when they know that everything is lost. You know, that, like, does that, what does that bring out in people? And I feel like in his case, it, like, part of his ongoing inner monologue, the whole thing is, like, basically, like, am I a good person for doing, being, coming and fighting here, volunteering, or am I, am I a bad person for doing it? Mm-hmm. And so I think that was his, like, last act of contrition was to, like, get her to go on and try to survive the war. Which, who knows if she did, right? It's still, like, early days. <laughs> True, she yeah. She easily could have died really later. Have a... <laughs> An ending point for that, right. where what happened? Right, because the narrator dies, <laughs> Robert Jordan. Another really interesting thing that I liked in this a lot was I really liked. Um, it seemed like there were like little nods in the book to how Ernest Hemingway was writing a book about the yeah, war. Yeah, because then they kept different characters kept being like, "I want to write the best book about this war," but Hemingway secretly being like, "Look, I'm writing it. I'm the best." I thought that was really. <laughs> Really interesting. I thought it was funny yeah. whenever that would come up. I'd be like, oh, all right. Well, yeah, those are really hilarious. It made me think that Hemingway would probably be like a fun guy to get a drink with. <laughs> or real depressed, like all the authors from that time. I mean, I read at the end of my edition of the novel, there's like a two page um, meet the author like biography. And I read it, and he freaking killed himself in the 60s. His dad killed himself, and then I looked it up on Wikipedia. His dad killed himself, his brother killed himself, his sister killed himself, and then him. And they think now, like, in the 60s, and they think now in, like, perhaps they had, you know, some disease outside of clinical depression, which definitely can run in families, but some other disease where, like, at that, when they hit a certain age, there's, like, vast decline in their health, and that's why he killed himself. But I just, like, 
how many great like authors kill themselves? It's so many, and I don't get it. And he, uh, several of his novels were pat were published like after his death. True. Yeah, posthumously. Yeah, uh, which I was just like, I don't know. It's like to me reading just this one novel by him. I haven't read any of his others, but it just made me think that he was probably the kind of guy who was like, this is gonna be like romantic, and like there's a romantic and a story of my me choosing, but that like suicide is never romantic. It's never good. It's it's never the right thing to do, right? And so, so, but I feel like he's the kind of person who would think that from well, the way this novel is. Well, you almost read that, yeah, in this novel that he a lot of times like, I mean, they were saying it like they were gonna protect themselves from being tortured, but they did talk about it very like not affectionately, yeah. but almost affectionately. Yeah, like the. I, I roll it up in my in my um, collar so that no matter what happens, I'll have these cyanide pills with me. What do they smell like? Should we take? Should we smell one now? Like it was. Yeah, it was it's real, very cavalier about it. It was like towing the line a little bit, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and I definitely the other thing about this book is that I couldn't decide if Hemingway likes Spaniards or not because a lot of times. There's lots of different characters all talking about like, oh, these people, like their rage is more than anyone else and they're the way, but the way that they love is more than anyone else and the, you know, and like they're only in Spain could this type of war happen because, and I just felt like it was like, I bet if you were from Spain now or the, or when it was published and you read this, you would be like, you don't understand us. Stop being an outsider pretending that you understand us. You know, this, the best book about the Spanish Civil War should have been written by a Spaniard. And maybe it was, we just haven't read it. Yeah, because yeah, it, was it wasn't translated into English. Yeah. yeah, or because the person who was going to write it died in this war. Right? In this terrible war. Where or because was... Franco, the dictator, oppressed it and didn't let it be published in the West. Because he did rule for another 30 yeah. years. So maybe there's a book that came out like more recently that's good about it and that's in Spanish. That'd be interesting because I wonder if it'd be a little bit like Pavel's letters, where it was kind of like yeah, reflecting that back book on personal it? histories. That'd be yeah, that would be book. a great book. If you guys know where that book exists for the Spanish Civil War, hit us up our, in our email address, one thousand one books podcast at gmail.com. Gotta throw that in there. Yeah. Um. Also, my personal favorite part of the book was the cursing. <laughs> oh yeah, we have to talk about that. <gasps> Because I'm not, I think a part of this was for a humor aspect. I think a part of this was so that it would be published. Right, because it's 1940. Um, mm-hmm. But anytime they cursed, they either said unprintable, like in the middle of the sentence, like, we unprintable killed them instead of the F word. Like, mm-hmm. Or yeah. they said, I, I have obscenity in the milk of. Yeah. It always had in the milk of Always in the milk, which must be a sp- thing in Spanish that makes sense. But I really enjoyed whenever it was obscenity, like, what do you think the real swear word was here? And I'd, like, try them out in my head, which made no sense. Well, and something I thought was so funny, because I, that's what made me feel like it was to get it published in the U.S., was because the Spanish curse word would sometimes be there. Right. Like, puta which is a curse word in Spanish, was in this book multiple times. Yeah. But anytime they were going to say the F word, they said obscenity. Yeah, but the American publisher just like, Americans don't know Spanish. <laughs> like, they're I dumb. Thought it was so <laughs> funny. Especially when it would be like a page and it would happen like seven times. Yeah, it's, yeah. This, that was a great part, the cursing, for sure. <laughs> it was real yeah. successful for me. <laughs> yeah. So any final thoughts? Or do you think it's time to decide if we think this should be on the 1001 books before you die, to read before you die list? No, I think we're good, except for I just opened the page 
to an obscenity. And the curse on this page is just leche. It's just, just milk. milk. When milk. she means to say fuck. <laughs> we should start using that. That's what you should use when you're teaching so the kids don't know that you're Leche. <laughs> milk. Milk. I like that. I'm going to use that in like when the situations aren't appropriate for the curse. When you're feeling really frustrated. Oh, oh milk. Ah, milk this day. <laughs> oh, um, I love it. Yeah. Okay, so we've obviously said that we both found this book tedious and bland are one word choices but do we think that it deserves to be canon the books will read before you die i i do think it belongs on the list i wish maybe it was shorter but i do think it belongs there i think that it's um ernest hemingway is a part of that lost generation of writers who obviously like with f scott fitzgerald and lots of other ones that we can't remember their names of but apparently they're you literally you're judging this whole group of authors in the 20s based on f scott fitzgerald and which you've read one book by him and now one book by him anyway and you're like this group in paris in the 20s well i mean i've read a lot about it <laughs> yeah you've read the wikipedia about the group but not any of their novels <laughs> i'm real knowledgeable okay. um but no i mean i think that anytime you read books a lot of times they'll reference that group and That's say true. that they were That's playing a true. key role and so I think that it's nice that we have one of the books from one of that group of authors mm-hmm. on this list because they are so frequently referenced by others authors as being a part of talking about disillusioned youth and starting the conversation about war and all that information even if I haven't read that <laughs> yes I feel like I agree that it should be on the list which is weird because I mean it's been a while since you... Re- it took me weeks to read this book. And I, and I would like, okay, I'm going to read two chapters and then I get to look scroll through Facebook for 15 minutes. And I'm going to read another two chapters. Like, I had to trick myself into reading it. And so I wouldn't say, like, put this on high school curriculum because it'll make kids not think that they like to read. But I think that the content of this book is important in the, like, w- all what literature means for society, you know? And I, I thought by reading this book, I learned something about history that was left out about out of my history classes because Uh it made me want to research a little more similar to Pavel's letters where I learned things about a section of history that's just kind of cut out because it's not big in our westernized version of history yes but it was still important yes absolutely yeah that definitely so so that's it we're putting this on the list that's two out of three books so far on the list it made it yes we're gonna write it down yes in the book okay So what are we doing for our next segment, Chelsea? So we thought our little fun segment this time would be talking about our top five books of all time and just giving a list of our top five books and maybe a little blurb as to why we really liked them so that you guys could get to know us a little more as readers. And then we could have a chance to talk about books that we really, really, really loved Mm. rather than books that we feel are important but maybe didn't love. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, so... what also what's great is that there's only one book that overlaps on our list, but I still love all the books on Chelsea's list. And all the books I've read on Nicole's list, I really love as well. Okay, so I'm going to say my, so should we do like one, one, two, two, or me one through five, you one through five? Let's do one, one, two, two. Okay, so my number one, I'm going to blanket statement, the whole Harry Potter series. And it's my number one because it's the main thing that I will reread over and over again. And I will often find myself doing a reread whenever in life there's a big change happening or whatever, or like I'm, I moved or like something drastic changed in my life. And because it's so comforting and because it's the world is so consuming for me still, even though I've read them like so many times. That's yes. my number one. You go. My number one is, 
this was really hard, and I keep, every time I've said it out loud to Nicole, I've switched the order. So, <laughs> um, I'm gonna say my number one is also Harry Potter, but it was really, really close with my number two. And depending on my mood, it might be number two. Like on the list that Nicole's looking at right now, it's number two. <laughs> um, so, I similar. But then I gave you my reasons, and you were like, "Oh, that's so true." Right. <laughs> similar reasons to Nicole. I really love Harry Potter. It's really all encompassing for me. Um. The last time I reread Harry Potter, I was going through a really bad breakup, and it just like takes it takes you it takes out of you your out life. of yourself. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it, every time I find something new in it, I have a Harry Potter tattoo from my favorite literary quote in the whole entire world, which is um, Dumbledore when he says that happiness can be found in the darkness of times if you only remember to turn on the light. Um, I don't have that whole quote. I just have the word Lumos for turning Which on lights. Technically not even in the quote, but no. it makes you think of it. It makes you think <laughs> of it. Um, because I just feel like that is what Harry Potter helps me do sometimes when I'm feeling really down is remember to turn on that light and there's something really oh, happy that's that can really be found. good, yeah. And so that's, ugh, I switched the oh, order, but now it's number one again. Why aren't we doing a Harry Potter podcast? We could definitely come up with hours of content. <laughs> Because there's probably about 50 of them. Yeah, there is that Harry Potter and the Sacred Test, a text one, but I've only listened to a few episodes. I've only listened to a couple of Sacred Text. I also have a Harry Potter tattoo. But my number two book on the, for my list is The Kite Runner, which the, I read that book in, in college. That's about when it was published, when it was first really new. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first novels I ever read that was set in the Middle East. Like, that, and that wasn't about white people in the Middle East, you know? And it, I don't know, I just found it... Really is powerful it, and is good. Is it an own voices novel? Is he the author from the Middle East? He's he is American, but he immigrated here. Okay, as a tra- like a teenager, or a, tra- a child, or a teenager, I think. Um, and I yeah, and I just it had a profound impact on me and like how I see the world and what how I think about news. You know, I, it was powerful. My second book, which again was number one as of about thirty five minutes ago before starting the podcast, <laughs> um, is a tree grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith and this book is published published I think in the 1930s 1940s Um, and it's about a little girl growing up and poverty stricken in Brooklyn and kind of the things she overcomes and I just really love that book I read it in an old copy that I found on my parents bookshelf that was after I recommended it to you (laughs) after you recommended it to me but the copy I read it on was Was beautiful antique water stained and had all this stuff on it and I've just Reread it multiple times and just always still find it so engaging. Yeah, I read that one a few times too. It's really good. Um, my number three is Gone with the Wind, which I'm pretty sure is on this 1001 book list and which I'll look forward to rereading it because I've only read, read it, it once. <laughs> um, yeah, Chelsea hasn't read it. I and it, I really like this because when I was a kid, my mom and my mom's sister, my aunt, would, they would always like it was very important to me to show them like a lot of old musicals and old movies that their mom showed them and uh and one of those has gone with the wind and so I saw the movie like when I was a little kid and I didn't read the book until maybe until high school and the book's a lot different than the movie like they cut out huge chunks of the book to make it into a movie but I yeah it's just like it makes me think about my family you know it's comforting I like yeah. it yeah my third on the list is To Kill a Mockingbird. Classic. Um, and it was one of the first required novels that I really loved, besides The Diary of Anne Frank. And oh, that was good. Which is really good, too. I think that might be on the list, too. Uh, so To Kill a Mockingbird, I just... It's about a little girl growing up in a segregated South and kind of a whole story that revolves around her 
um, and her father, who's a lawyer. And I just love that novel. Again, I've read it a couple of times. I did not read the... You didn't read it? The, the, sequel, the new I sequel? I didn't read the new sequel. Ugh. Because I'm kind of a purist, and I feel like she didn't want it published, which I know there's drama around that. So I've just read the first one. I'm pretty sure, if I remember right, she actually wrote what is the sequel before she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, even though it's a sequel yeah. chronologically. And she didn't want it published. But I did read it, and most... It got panned, I think. Like, people hated yeah. it. And people hate it because... Partly why I didn't because, the, it because the dad in that is, like, more racist. But I thought that it was really good because and I love To Kill a Mockingbird and it's very idealistic you mm-hmm. know but I love the sequel which whose title I can't think of right now um because yeah go even, tell it on the watchman go tell it on the go tell the watchman and because the dad because even though in To Kill a Mockingbird he fought in the, as a lawyer in that trial for that black man you know but then still like when the daughter comes home like from New York as an adult you know he's still He's still, like, he's still a man of his time in the place that he was. You know, mm-hmm. I think it was realistic that people aren't just all good or all evil, you know? <laughs> I, and just, like, the family dynamics in it of, like, how do you talk to your family when you fundamentally disagree about a social issue is, like, very relevant to everyone in the world right now, right? And so, oh, it's so good. You should, you should read it even though you're a purist. <laughs> um, my fourth book is Roots. Um, by Alexi Haley, I think. Yeah, Alex Haley. Alex, Alex Haley. Because it's Alexi, Alexi Sherman, Sherman Alex Haley. With, yeah. <laughs> Not the same at all. Nope. <laughs> and I read this book in high school, too, because my mom always talked about watching the miniseries of Roots, like, when it was first on in the 70s, and then she bought me this book, and I eventually watched the old miniseries from the 70s. I never watched the remake that just came out a couple years ago, but... The book is so good because I, in general, I love novels that follow families over like many generations and this novel did that and I loved how it was like an exploration of his personal family history and, and it was, the book is brutal about slavery, like. Yeah. It's intense and like so graphic though. It's and like stuff. 800 it, pages Yeah, too. and it's 800 pages and I loved every page of it and I just feel like it's, yeah, even now, even when there's been lots and lots of other books written about civil rights and slavery and race relations in America, I think this one, it's, it's hands the test of time. I I, per, I currently am on the wait list for 12 Years a Slave. Oh, I haven't read that. And yeah. I want to see how I feel about that because I really like Roots. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. My fourth book on the list is The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. And I love this one, first of all, because it's a World War II uh, novel, which I just kind of lean towards anyway. And because I love that the narrator, you find this on the first page, it's not a spoiler, is death. Um, and so the narrator is something so unique that you don't really see. And it's all about the power of words and how protecting words is important. And I just love this book. That just made me think of another book I could have put on this list, Fahrenheit 451. Oh, but it's not on my too. top five. Fahrenheit 451 is on this list, but we both have read it before. Book Thief is yeah. definitely in my top five. Yeah. Okay, my last book, number five, is called The Age of Miracles, and I, I didn't look up who the author was when we started recording, but this is a book that it's um, basically, it's a metaphor allegory, allegory about global warming, but it's set, and the narrator is like a 12-year-old girl in California, like at some point in the near recognizable future, and, um, and rather than global warming being what causes, you know, disastrous environmental things to happen, what happens is that people wake up one morning and then scientists realize that the earth has started to spin slower on its axis just by a few minutes every day. The day is getting longer by a few minutes every day and, and it's continuing and it's kind of like, what if the disaster that happens isn't the thing that we've been preparing for? And then 
it's kind of good that the narrator is a child because she's just really focused on like what's happening to her and her city and her family because she can't so they don't you don't have to explain what happened to all the people on other continents you know because uh-huh. the day gets longer and longer and like all the birds die because the magnetic field the earth breaks and, and they have to start growing all the food under in greenhouses and so they have to use all the electricity that we have left to do that and the internet so they cancel the internet like it's like this whole thing about like and it's basically it's like it's like the, it's the end of humanity right like over, over time and then the kind of the epilogue of the book is like the days and the nights are each a week long like that's how much it's slowed down Crazy. And, and it's kind of like earth's reaction to how we've mistreated it for millennia you know and but it's super and so it's like it's like totally not about it's not about global warming but it's about global warming and i just loved it in fact i bought like a signed copy of it at powell's books in portland oregon because like ah, it's my favorite thing so that's my number five my number five is also one that teaches you a lesson that I think is very relevant, but does it in a completely different way. Um, it's Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. That's and so good. I just love that book that, in the end, it's really a lesson about, like, phobias against people and, like, how we exterminate each other and, like... yeah. War and, and how like war corrupts children and the and it's just it has a really big message. But the whole time you're reading it, you're just so engaged in this story of this little boy who's playing more games that aren't games. Yeah, and doesn't know. And it's just so yeah. good. Um, I didn't make it through the sequels. Me neither. One day I might try them again. But I just I love Ender's Game for what it is and mm-hmm. what it kind of stands for as a one point novel. So. Yeah, didn't we go see the movie version of this together? I think we, we did. did. I did they, not like the I did movie not like version. It. They cut out so many. Like they cut out so much of the like simulations in the like school, and that's like the best part of the novel. Yeah, <laughs> and I didn't hate it as much as some people did. Some people really hated that I movie. Know. I was just moderately displeased. Yeah, I was just like, I'm not going to see it again. You yeah, know? and that's like for a book adaptation, which usually are really disappointing. That's not bad. Yeah. That would be a good setting to do. Like, what do we think are the best book adaptations? Oh, um, maybe that'll be next 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 podcast. Next podcast. Spoilers or foreshadowing or you know some book yeah. word <laughs> foreshadowing. <isn't laughs> it? All right, let's let's draw our next book. Yay! <laughs> okay, so our next book is called Pierre and Jean. John Jean Jean with a French accent. However, that would sound Pierre uh, and Jean. Jean, I think Pierre and Jean. So okay, based on title alone, what do we think it's about? Hmm. I think it's about lovers in France. Mostly because you said French accent. <laughs> well, Pierre and Jean, those are definitely <gasps> French names. I definitely think it's a fr- about French, maybe like a, fr- even it could be like written in French and we're going to read translation. And I hope that, P- I think those are, those are both men's names. So I, yeah, I hope that it's about a gay couple in France. Oh, that'd be really interesting. Because <laughs> that, that'd be so interesting, right? And there's like that, like in the 20s, your favorite time period for writing, the, <laughs> although it was like a big culture, right? Of, and like gay culture in Paris at that time. And the lost generation that I know so much so about. So much about. So here's another <laughs> novel. And who knows, like, this, this, maybe this is a novel from the 1700s. Who knows? But, um, but, it sounds, but it sounds pretty good. So look forward to that next episode, you guys. And if you enjoyed our episode today, remember to rate and review us so that more people see it and more people are able to listen in. Yeah, we'd really appreciate that. And you can always contact us. Um, on Facebook and Twitter as at 1001bookspod or at our email, 1001bookspodcast at gmail.com. And that 1001 is a number, 1001. Yes, well, you don't have to spell it out. Yeah, that's way too long for an email address. Yes. That's long. That'd be a lot. (laughs) All right, well, until next time, keep reading. Bye. Bye.